everyone, uh, and we're live. Hi, and welcome to the podcast where we interview awesome makers and shine some light on the people and their projects. I'm your host, Jason Tunison. Um, today, we are here with special guest, Casey Kilmer, from your YouTube channel. Yes. Wait, I thought you were going to say from Australia, but... <laughs> from Australia. From Australia as well. <laughs> yes, that is true. From Australia, yes. But yeah, I, um, I have a YouTube channel that I run, and it sort of started as a bit of a, a side project, as I think most things may have started during the quarantine period that everyone kind of had to enter at the start of the year. And just as a bit of a creative outlet in the beginning, I had a friend who kind of encouraged me to, I don't know, jump jump into some unknown territory. She was like, just do it. It'll be yeah. fine. And um, yeah, it turned into a serious passion project and I have found myself spending most of my days thinking about content and watching content to get inspired and writing back to comments and reading comments. And yeah, it's, it's been a crazy, crazy year to say the least. I think a lot of people might have that opinion of 2020, but <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's been good. It's been a exciting, exciting yeah. year. Cause I think I'll share the story of how, how I found you was I was just on YouTube and, um, my girlfriend moved to Holland and then as you do on YouTube, you something pops up in your feed and it was like, whatever, something I learned in Holland or five language things. And I was like, yeah. oh, I'll give this a, give this a look. And then it's like, oh no, this is actually pretty fun. And then you had some other channels up there. And then I thought, well, I'm going to get this person on the podcast. So I sent you a message and you're like, sure, let's, let's do this. But yeah, how, how long your, your channel hasn't existed for very long. Not long at all. Not long at all. Like I was just saying it, sort of began as a bit of a passion project just back in February and we had had plans to sort of travel around and I just wanted to make some videos of me and my family and getting up to things and the places we had planned to go in 2020 (laughs) that obviously didn't go through and yeah so that's kind of where it started and then pivoted very quickly because obviously it wasn't filling up with the content for myself and I ended up making a video kind of explaining how I broke down the Dutch language and and decided to learn it and maybe some like tips and tricks and that video kind of did quite well and I thought okay well if this is the content people are interested in like I could talk about this all day so like if you guys (laughs) want to listen then I'm happy to talk. So yeah, I, it hasn't been very long. It's been about eight or nine months or so. So not even a whole year where I've been making content and even a shorter period of time that I've been making Dutch specific content. But that is really when I became super involved in the channel and could really feel that sense of community building up, which kind of feeds that drive to keep going and that drive to sort of yeah, just that you know that people are interested in what you have to say and the fact that I love it so much and having met other people that also love it that much, I think that's been like the really surprising thing. Yeah. Like I had no idea that other people would find the quirks and the nuances of the Dutch language and your culture, of course, as interesting as I found it as an expat living there and trying to learn the language and unpack you know, the crazy grammar system and, you know, yeah, just well, all think, of those things. 
I think it's like, um, was it like a perfect storm with, with Holland being the way it is? A lot of people say Holland is a Euro trip for beginners because a lot of people in, in Holland speak, speak English, speak quite well English. Um, so I think that you can resonate with a lot of people. I think a lot of expats come to Amsterdam. Um, now with the situation with Brexit, I heard a lot of people are going to Amsterdam. So I think your YouTube channel probably can resonate with a lot of people that are like, what am I doing in Holland? I know English, yeah. but. Perhaps it was a bit of like right place, right time. There was a, a need for that kind of content yeah. or a, a peak in that kind of interest that people had. But yeah, I have found myself super interested in the culture for a long time. And I kind of feel that way about any country that I live in or any country that I visit. I try and dive headfirst into the food and the language and pick. And I try to act as a sponge really no matter where I am and just like soak it all up and try and get as much of an experience out of, out of it. And, yeah, I guess obviously the most time that I've spent in a country in the last few years has been Holland. So that's where my sponge activity has been occurring. How did, well, how did, or why did you choose to go to Holland? Um, um, so my partner's actually Dutch and we met here in Australia quite a few years ago and traveled around for quite some time and did a bit of country hopping. And we lived in New Zealand for a year together and, then we cycled through Southeast Asia and we kind of got up to the top in China and I said, I think, you know, I think we're done. I think I'm ready just to, to have a bit of a home base. We'd um, been cycling for too long and he had also been away from Holland for quite a few years and he said, all right, well, let's give my country a yeah. chance. And I said, I am on board, let's do it. And, yeah, I didn't know much about it. I had been there once for about a week or so to visit his family oh, yeah. and go to a wedding. And, yeah, that was interesting, but I don't think it was long enough to really appreciate the culture. It was like a really quick fly-in, fly-out yeah. kind of thing and you're overwhelmed with, like, meeting your partner's family for the first time. So there wasn't a huge amount of, you know, sitting down and soaking in what the Netherlands is and seeing places outside of Amsterdam and getting a real sense for the culture instead of yeah. just that very touristy, quick, you're here for seven days, meet everyone, see all the main things and then fly out. So yeah. I think it's sad that most people probably do experience the Netherlands in that way. And I know that's a lot of feedback that I've gotten on my channel that the Netherlands is bigger than Amsterdam. And I understand that in a massive way because it is. But a lot of isn't, my experiences. Isn't with, with any like touristy location, like if you go to France, it's like, okay, we go to Paris, we, we knock off this, this bucket list. And it's like, yeah, but if you actually go into to France and you talk to the locals and you go into some, and it's the same with, with any, I mean, Australia is probably the same. It's, like yeah. it's bigger than just Sydney. Sydney is like, no, you go, go into the outback and, go camp out with some some locals 100%. and completely yeah. different so i always think yeah. like what i like about well, doing a road trip is you're sort of forced to go in a supermarket and it's like this supermarket yeah. is so different than every other supermarket i think that's more fascinating than any whatever church or highlight or it's like no go into the supermarket this is how people live yes i totally agree i think that you know kind of imagining yourself in that normal everyday yeah. life 
is that, and, you know, getting bus timetables and catching public transport to, you know, places that you don't know how to pronounce and yeah, going to the supermarket and trying to decipher labels and ingredients Mm -hmm. and, you know, haggle with old ladies about the price of their oranges. I don't know, you know, whatever happens in the countryside, but there definitely are two sides to every country. There's that kind of hard and fast touristy version that most people come into contact with. And then there's kind of that more authentic real side of a country. What the locals do kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, So I was just checking out your YouTube channel, but you have um, some of your videos have like 200,000 views. That's crazy. Like for for a channel that's only been up for whatever, not even a year. That's more than 10,000 views, 20,000 views a month. It is crazy. I'm just as like shocked (laughs) as you are. So (laughs) did you expect this? What was your expectations coming into this? Like that I literally would just be making random videos and no one would be seeing like them 10 people like your family yeah friends, like, yeah. yeah literally my mum always still comes out and she'll be like I just watched your newest YouTube video yeah. like it's really good and that's you know she's number one fan but I I kind of expected her to be my only fan ever <laughs> so you know the fact that 200,000 people on the internet somewhere want to hear about my opinion on yeah. you know Dutch habits and Dutch words that better than English versions you know that's it surprises me I'm, I'm actually more surprised that the the audience too that a lot of them seem to be Dutch people checking out their own culture yeah. that was a surprise mm. I kind of had that expectation that I'd be connecting with other expats and other people that shared the experiences that I had but it's been largely Dutch people kind of resonating with the content for for whatever reason yeah. but I, I think you know, if someone was making videos about Australian culture, like my curiosity would certainly get the better of me. And yeah, I'm like, what are these people thinking too, about so, my yeah. uh, culture? <laughs> Definitely. Make sure they're not talking uh, talking bad stuff about your. Uh... Yeah, that's it. I have to pull them in line if <laughs> if something's wrong, <laughs> which the Dutch are not afraid to do. But oh, you know. <laughs> but... So, so do you have like a background in media? Like, how did you even get started? Were you just like um no nothing literally nothing I had never edited video before I had you know taken photos on holidays but I'd never really worked with filming or cameras to a degree of you know like searching for light and all of that stuff I've just picked up along the way just you know driven by interest and trying to get better you know bring something out that was better than the last thing I brought out and it's been a really awesome year for learning and I've just, I'm a massive advocate for self-learning. And I think that's the biggest thing that I kind of try to push on the channel too, is that you don't have to pay for really expensive textbooks. You don't have to pay for classes and, and take all this time out of your day. You make learning work for you and you squeeze it in when you want to. And if I'm really honest, learning happens when you want it to happen. So I think if you've got the motivation, you'll learn anything. Yeah. And I think producing videos, yeah, kind of just fell on my lap and I didn't have a huge amount to do because like a lot of other people, we were in quarantine and I just found it incredibly interesting. And yeah, I just, 
I basically made a YouTube channel from watching other YouTube videos on how to make a YouTube channel. So there's <laughs> a bit of an inception for you. Yeah. Do, do you think that, that um, like the, the, the internet culture, the culture of YouTube influences and shapes the, the culture of YouTube? Like do YouTube videos become more YouTube-y if you like compare it to traditional TV? As in, do you think that the way YouTube... it's edited, the the barrier, the quality? So I was watching something on Netflix, um, one of those Discovery Channel shows, but it wasn't quite Discovery Channel. You sort of like those documentaries. Yeah, okay. And so I was YouTube like, has its kind of unique style. Yeah, but some production value on YouTube, like, is maybe even better than some of this, some of these reality shows. Yeah, I find YouTube highly engaging, and I think that kind of comes from being a creator you see a lot more behind the scenes and you can yeah. see exactly where people where your audience is dropping off you can see like the amount of analytics that you get as a creator on YouTube is crazy like I had no idea that people that I watch on YouTube would also have information like that on me and how how many of their videos I watch yeah. or how engaged I am with their content so I think creators on YouTube are so different and have to kind of cater to that. And that, that changes the amount and the type of content they make. Like some of the production quality on YouTube blows my mind. And like I said, the retention that you get from your audience, if you have statistics from one video and you're one of those people that strives to, you know, do better than your yep. last, then <clears throat> you're going to strive to make sure that people start watching five to six minutes instead of three minutes and ways to do that is to you know add in all of these different things and b-roll and, and make it interesting and engaging and ask you ask questions to your audience and and all of those things so I think those things come together to create a very specific type of content that you see on YouTube yeah but isn't also a bit of a danger of sort of trying to chase the numbers and losing your initial spark or do you think this sort of self-perpetuates itself? Yeah, I think there is a bit of a danger of losing yourself to your own numbers and, and trying to outdo yourself to sort of please your audience and kind of get gain more numbers and gain longer watch time yeah. and you start to divert yourself from why you really started a YouTube channel and what your message is. Yeah. Like what are you trying to t tell your audience or are you just trying to collect subscribers? Like there has to be a lot of <laughs> checking to be like, is this really what my audience wants? Is this what I want to create? Like am yeah. I interested about this topic? Would I talk to my friends or, you know, Dutch people about this topic or have I seen people asking me questions in the comments section that I think are really interesting that other people might think and I think, oh, I've never thought about that before, like dive into it, research it, because I love that side, that yeah. aspect of, of creating videos is unpacking these things that I hadn't really thought about before. Like just recently I did one on Dutch cinema and it took me a long time to get into the Dutch movie thing I think there's a, a certain style about it and obviously growing up just with you know a lot of English content that's Hollywood based 
it was that shift of, okay, well, not all Dutch movies follow that kind of right. stereotype and it was sort of more of an acquired taste. But I think when you find some of those movies that really resonate with you, you want to share that. And mm-hmm. I think researching that video and seeing that there was more of a history to Dutch cinema than I initially thought, that was one of the really cool things that I learned about creating that kind of content. So, yeah. So what movies did you watch? Um, it was just sort of more of a collection of movies that I think have stood out to me over the last few years. I used movies a lot to practice my language skills oh, yeah. and kind of check in with myself and make sure like, oh, I've seen this movie, you know, six months ago, watch it again. Do I understand more of it? Have I picked up more of the jokes? Can I pick up more of the, the tone and the nuances? I think jokes are definitely in language, very nuanced with, within the language. A hundred percent. Jokes are probably the hardest thing, I think, especially because they also change in area, like slang is used differently. Even in Australia, we have that, you know, there's certain words that you would use in Queensland that you would not use, for instance, in Victoria or certain places or local things that may have happened in history and jokes that can be tied to that, that kind of just blow over my head if someone was to say something like that in Dutch because it just would not make sense to me. No. <laughs> I think there's such an emotional aspect to, to joke making and joke understanding that, you know, still. Well, I think the Dutch definitely have a lot of um, comedians. Yeah, they do. There's they do. And they speak very and... fast. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't find a lot of them funny, but there are a lot of them. <laughs> I wonder where that demand is coming from then. <laughs> uh, I think the Dutch have a certain sense of humor that I don't quite um, understand. Would you would you say that your humor is more New Zealand? My humor is definitely like when I'm looking at stuff like Flight of the Concords, I think that's the most hilarious oh, stuff ever. That and is such looking- a good show. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just that dry, witty dumb self i don't know yeah they're just sort of that that i don't know whatever it is and you see that with the taika waititi movies as well it's like there's always this there's one guy and he, he sort of he's knows great. he doesn't really know what he's doing but he's gonna do it anyway yeah and i think that's definitely new zealand humor and i can definitely get behind that um and dutch humor is a little bit um i don't know different i haven't really tried to to pick it apart but i know i'm I'm not really a big fan of most dutch comedians Um, yeah but i think that was like the the beauty of doing that video dutch cinema kind of content on my channel was that i uncovered more content that i actually kind of gelled with and i think when you find something that really kind of speaks to you you have way more of appreciation for the industry on a whole level because you can kind of see yourself enjoying that kind of content but yeah yeah. I know what you mean. It's, it's yeah, an acquired taste. It is an acquired taste. And I'm not sure if it's just a cultural thing or if it's just the content that's out there. I think the bigger your market mm-hmm. is, the more likely you're going to find something that you resonate with. Um, yeah. Yeah, I definitely think there is an aspect of that. It's it's small and, and super niche. There's yeah. not a lot of funding and there's not a yeah. lot of demand either. Well, that as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it's hard for movies to go international um, once it's in English. So you're more likely to have, or once it's in Dutch, so you're probably more likely to have those people make an English movie and then, and the, the Dutch people, they speak English anyway. 
Yeah. So. Yep. That's it. I think that, yeah, that's one of the things that I think I've struggled <clears throat> with in the Dutch culture the most is how prevalent the English language is. I think I always saw myself learning a language and diving into this culture and not forgetting my English side, but kind of being able to escape it. I think you can kind of not reinvent yourself, but you have this opportunity to learn how to express yourself in a completely new way. And when you're confronted the whole time by English content and people that speak English and people that find out that you speak English. So now they want to speak English with you. And then yeah. you're like constantly being chased by your old language and you're like, yeah. leave me alone. <laughs> that's, that's what I hear a lot is, is Dutch is one of the hardest languages to learn. That's what I've heard. I'm not sure if it's true, but it's one of the hardest languages to learn, not because it's a hard language, but because no one will speak Dutch to you as soon as they hear you speaking with an English accent. And I think, yeah. how have you experienced that? Is that something you agree with or? Uh, yes, 100%. There was a big kickback from a lot of people who probably didn't have the patience. And not that I expect that from everyone. You definitely have to choose language partners pretty wisely. You yeah. can't expect every speaker of that language to want to practice with you and listen to you butcher their language and... <laughs> make mistakes all the time and, and speak really slowly. So I definitely understand that. But, you know, there was a lot of people saying, yeah, but I want to practice my English. And yeah. I think, yeah, but I want to practice my Dutch. So, like, is you learning English more important than me learning Dutch? Is that what you're telling me? Or I think it's fun. It was- it's romanticized. English is the, the, the language of movies. And it's like now I have a mm. legit chance to go English yeah I think it it was super super tricky and I probably had to be my biggest motivator to stay speaking Dutch and people speaking English to me and me just staying in Dutch and like full-on replying in Dutch and even though they kept replying in English and I would just be like really stubborn and say no I'm just gonna speak Dutch and my partner was when we were finishing up our travels in Asia I said, I think I really want like, I really want to learn Dutch. I really want to have an experience of your culture and be able to speak to your grandparents. And, you know, there's, he's got family members that really don't speak English. So for me to kind of come in and expect his family to accommodate me felt rude. It's not how I would kind of do things. So I really wanted to make an effort to be able to say like, I'm here and I want to get to know you all as much as I know you know, your grandson or your son or your nephew. So when we got to the Netherlands, he was like, okay, well, are you serious about doing this? And I said, yeah, of course I am. Like, I'm, I'm ready to go. Like, we're here. I'm, <laughs> I've signed up. We are in Amsterdam. Like, let's yeah. do this. And that was it. That was like the last English thing he said to me. So after that, <laughs> it was 100% Dutch, 100% of the time. And there were moments I probably could have killed him because I was so frustrated and, and tired and I hated it and I couldn't believe that I wanted this and and all of those That's how you do it. Those moments. But yeah, I was Cold literally turkey. yeah, thrown in the deep end and let's do it. And it worked. It worked. Yeah. And he said it will work. It just will. Yeah. And it did. So well, and, and you know, that's I, the thing. If your partner's speaking Dutch to you, other people will speak Dutch to you. 
Yeah, and he was a really massive advocate for me too when when we would go to social things and especially with his family, yeah. he would be the one to really be my voice when people weren't taking me seriously. He would be like, no, we're going to speak Dutch or we're going to stay speaking Dutch because that's yeah. the only way she's going to learn. So I think having yeah. him on my side and him sort of helping like raise my voice because I've obviously yeah. said, you know, like I want to speak Dutch and him being on my side was a massive, massive game changer because people are very, very quick to speak English. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, until they don't and then you're sitting there at a, a barbecue and you can't understand anyone and you're like, what am it, I doing here? It takes one joke or one, you know, one word or, you know, someone who comes in and the whole conversation, the whole party, the whole barbecue starts speaking Dutch again and you are that person that doesn't understand anything. I, no. I don't know how some ex- expats do it and they've been living in the country for, you know, five plus years and they're still sometimes that person at the barbecue that doesn't understand what's going on. It would drive me crazy. Yeah. Maybe. Crazy. Maybe. I think a lot of people are, um, they don't want to be difficult. And mm. they're just like, I'm here and you can speak English to me. And if not, then I'll sort of understand and pretend I'll get some of these jokes and then at least I have some some company or something. I don't know. And yeah, I think people... There might be an element of that. I think people, some, some cultures are sort of um, afraid to speak Dutch because they're afraid they might get laughed at or... Like, mm. uh, you're sort of butchering our language like you said and it's like no then i just speak english and then uh, at least i'm safe maybe i don't know yeah i think and i've mentioned this in a video before but having that one person that you completely trust and whether it's you know for me it was obviously my partner because he you know now it's different he definitely makes fun yeah. of me when i make mistakes <laughs> but in the beginning he was that person that would be like super encouraging yeah. and if i did make mistakes it wasn't a big deal and I think that, you know, whether you've got someone that provides that kind of conversation for you, it makes a massive difference just mentally and your confidence yeah. in kind of taking that situation and applying it to other people outside of that person. But that second sort of stage is really difficult to do if you don't have that initial person that kind yeah. of provides that sense of security for you when you're, you're kind of playing and experimenting in the beginning when it's yeah. a new language. So. Yeah, and, and I think Dutch is a difficult language. Like I've been living here for 20 <laughs> years and I still make mistakes. And there's there's Dutch people that make mistakes. And I'm like, it why is, is this language and... so difficult? Yes. Like, and then you get laughed at because you made a mistake. It's like, no, your language is, is difficult. It is. It is super difficult. And it's I, unnecessarily I difficult. Maybe everyone hears that about their own language though, because I've heard people say the True. same thing about English. That English, English is, is the incredibly, same. Incredibly difficult to learn. You know, there's silent I letters actually, and sometimes there's this and that. And I've got yeah. some um, some examples because my mum is a, is a translator, so she translates Dutch text to English. And then every yes. now and then she'll give okay. me a call and she'll be like, okay, I've got this and this. How do we fix this? I'll be like, oh, I don't know. And, and it's just things you just do. So... The example that annoys me the most is nine to five, Monday to Friday. Yeah. And nine to five means you're open from nine o'clock up until five. Yeah. And Monday to Friday means you're open from Monday up until Saturday. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, if you want to logically unpack language (laughs) like that. (laughs) Well, it's it's something that Dutch, they have a word for that. They say up until, but you don't say that in English. 
And so no. sometimes when you're, you have to do like these legal documents or stuff, you have to be like, no, is this up until that day or is it including that day? Yeah. Okay. I understand what you mean. Yeah. I don't, I've never come like. You never really, think about it until no, someone I've asks you this. I've never thought about it. Yeah. That's left me completely stumped. I, I Maybe these things are just learned from experience. You obviously know that most business hours are Monday to Friday and that <laughs> most of them are over nine o'clock till five o'clock. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it gets more interesting if you have like um, from the 31st till or the 1st of January to the 1st of uh, February or the, from, the, from the first of the month to the last yeah. of the month, the last of the year. Yeah. Then you get these like, is it still open on the first of January the next year or not? Or I don't know. It's it's weird. And then especially if you get Dutch people asking you these questions, like what are the rules? It's like, I don't know the rules. Uh, yeah, I don't know the, the rules. rules. <laughs> God, the amount of times I've heard that when I've asked questions about Dutch though. And I'm like, yeah. what are the like explain this to me? This makes no sense. Like, yeah. what are we talking about here? I don't know the rules. That's just the way it is. That is and the way I, it is. That has been like one of the the biggest things that you learn when learning another language is you just have to let some things just go. Oh, yeah. They they just have to be how they are, learn it how it is and use it how it's taught. Yeah. Don't ask too many questions. So I've, I've got another example of something that really bugged me when I moved to Holland was the way they count. And I still can't oh. write numbers in Dutch. This is the worst. If someone tells you their phone number, I, I cry just a little bit. Yeah, I just say say it number by number and not. Yeah, number by number and we'll be, we'll be okay. Yeah, so the Dutch, instead of saying 32, they say 230. Yeah. And they say yeah. the, the single digit before the, the tens digit. And it's so confusing and it, it just messes with me every time. It is. I don't know I how they do it. If someone is saying numbers and I need to write them at the same time, yeah. I find that incredibly difficult because yeah. I have to wait until they've finished saying the number before I can write it, which makes no, why would you make it that difficult? <laughs> why would you not just say the numbers in the order that they want to be written in? Yeah. yeah. I think like uh, we did, I did um, German in high <clears> school and that was probably my first introduction to that yeah. inversion of, of numbers. So it didn't come as a massive shock. But it is not my favorite thing about the Dutch language, no. Well, this brings me to, to another point that I always think about is do languages influence your thought process? So I'm wondering how many Dutch mathematicians are there? I was reading something and I'm not going to remember where I was reading it, but it was about... <laughs> It was about how a lot of those maths competitions and things are won by Chinese students. And it was because the numbers in Mandarin Chinese are so short that yeah. they can meant like they can process more numbers in the same amount of time. Yeah, you can think quicker if you can think quicker because they take up less amount of time to think about. And that was how they were managing to win maths competitions because the calculation time was basically you know and we're talking like milliseconds here yeah. in terms of thinking of a number in and just the way that they they do maths in well, their school um, system it was crazy so that, that i wonder about as well like some dialects so i know new zealanders they they talk quite slow and long out do those people think slower 
than maybe people that have speak faster and are more upbeat. Like, does that influence yeah. anything at a measurable level? Interesting. I mean, there's probably someone somewhere doing some sort of study on that. But I'm, I'm I've always, <laughs> I always thought that the way people think and the way they kind of interpret life is heavily influenced by the language they use and vice versa. I think that yeah. culture and language is so massively intertwined and the way you express yourself because you've been given a set of words kind of molds the way that you think and who you are as a person. Yeah. You have that internal voice or some people have an internal voice or don't, but yeah, it's exactly. mostly defined by your language. Yeah, a hundred percent. And do you find that obviously being able to speak both languages that you have moments where you find it easier to think in Dutch or speak in Dutch mm. and or you find you maybe act a different way when you're speaking another language? Have you ever had that experience? No, I haven't or... experienced that, but yeah, I just mostly think in English because I think it thinks faster. You have yeah. more actionable words in English. So if I have to count in my head, I'm definitely <clears throat> counting in English. So oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but I think my internal voice is, is a lot of explaining concepts to myself and I think if I can explain it in English that's easier than to explain it in Dutch and a lot of words we use uh, in, in our field is English so and a lot of our clients are English so I don't yeah. really have that Dutch internal monologue but I think it depends sometimes if I've explained a situation so many times out loud in yeah. Dutch I struggle then to turn it back into English like when we were moving houses and we were talking about contracts and you know certain terminology that you're <clears> using <throat> when you're changing yeah. rental agreements and things like that and I had talked about it with all of our Dutch family and friends for such a long time and then I jump on the phone and I talk to mum about it and then I'd be like hang on what's the word for like rental contract or like just yeah, yeah. like all of these things that I kept saying out loud in Dutch and then I really struggled to like <laughs> kind of go back into my language and be like wait what do we say for that so yeah yeah, I've definitely maybe not like been a different person or had a different way of thinking, but I definitely have moments where I find it easier to think in Dutch than than English, but that depends on the topic or yeah. how much I've been thinking about it in Dutch. And, and do you notice now that you know um, multiple languages that you see more, um, not, not like coincidences, more things that are related to each other? like patterns, do you start seeing like this, this word definitely comes from this other word or they're related somehow or. Yeah, definitely. I have just recently started picking up my French again because I have this ongoing on and off relationship with it. <laughs> and I am blown away actually by how much more I can understand just picking it up again because of my Dutch level. And I know that might sound kind of counterintuitive because most people correlate Dutch and German with each yeah. other. And, but then kind of going back to French and being like, hang on, we kind of have a version of that word in Dutch. So I think that once you get over that hurdle of learning one language, you kind of have the ability to, yeah, see those patterns or see those word stems yeah. and have an understanding of where they could be linked. And that kind of enables you to, you know, you hear about people on the internet that can speak 
10, 15, 20 languages, like these boy genius speaks 20 plus languages and things like that. And I think once you get past a certain level, yeah, it basically just becomes recognizing patterns. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Maybe once you get up to like 17, then adding another three isn't too difficult. Then again, you might get confused. Like which language is this one word again? How do I pronounce it? I don't know. I don't know how, what the inside of their heads look like when they're trying to think of a concept or have a conversation. Yeah. Messy. I think it's definitely, because one thing I've noticed is um, I'll be talking to people and I'll be like, oh, this word for this, and I wouldn't be able to find the English word and I'll just go to the Dutch word and I'll be like, wait, this Dutch word makes sense in this context. So, so one of the words that I um, always using as example is uh, is the word in english beached so when you're so the new Z- the dutch people they were they're traveling around the world and their boat would get beached and the yep. dutch word f- for beach is strand which means um which is, is is beach but if you're beached you're also stranded and stranded might be from the dutch word for beach oh yeah maybe yeah. i don't know that's, Could that's be. something that i've thought maybe someone will find out at some point and and another one that i find interesting is um the dutch word for um for for doing a test is proof and proof in dutch is to test but it's also to taste and the word test and taste sound the same so i'm like maybe there's a link somewhere there but I think this is, you know, the fun of unpacking a language because yeah. I don't know, I kind of just like to nerd out on that kind of stuff and, <laughs> and make those those mental connections where you think, oh, yeah, that's really cool. Like how have I never seen that before? And now you, it feels like you've got this key to a language and you can kind of unlock all these other possibilities and links and, and understand it on a way deeper level than what we probably initially thought. I love it. I, yeah. I think that it's super, uh, well, it's super. Also- like cool. evolving and especially because I know yeah, the Dutch they conquered a lot of the world and there's probably some Dutch people and some English people and they're just going around and they're swapping languages and like, oh, this is a fun word here for oh, this is a way better word than we've been using we'll use that now and then someone else will be like oh then know you guys use that word and I don't yeah, know. The, the first time I sort of came across that was when we were in Indonesia and they had these random Dutch words and I didn't speak Dutch at the time but my partner was like that's super strange that a and Osbok is the same in Indonesian as it is in yeah. Dutch. Like just these really random objects. And you'd be like, hang on, that's Dutch. That's a Dutch, Dutch word. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, there's something that I always ask is, is about how technology is changing. I mean, changing language. I mean, you know, you're, you're already changing the language with your YouTube channels, but are there other tools? Do you think it's easier to learn language now than it was 20 years ago when you're going around with your lonely planet warrior yes yeah a hundred percent and i just think that the anything is easier to learn these days like i was saying before i'm such a massive advocate for self-learning and the internet is like my best friend because anything's on there there is someone somewhere who has made content or made a video or a blog post or a mini class or anything there is literally something for anyone on the internet and it makes learning incredibly easy and most of the time completely free so why not like if you've got access to the internet you could teach yourself anything and I think that technology 
and its effect on language has been massive, huge in terms of popularizing learning more languages, as opposed to probably my parents' generation coming from Australia. Yeah. It is not a thing. Like no one really speaks a second language in Australia. There's no sort of blanket language that we learn. It's different in every school you go to, every primary school, every high school. So there's no uniform system where everyone speaks a basic basic level of X, Y, or Z. It's just a free-for-all. And I think that now with the internet, anyone has the opportunity to think, oh, you know, how would I say that word in this language or that language? Or I've been listening to heaps of Korean songs. Can I look them up and, and have an interest in that? So I think that technology has made a massive impact on the ease and that accessibility of languages don't you think it also maybe destroys languages now that i mean i think a lot of content on youtube is probably english maybe that's my biased idea but yeah no i definitely agree with you there i think and i don't think it destroys languages but i definitely think that the the english language has taken over too much of that space i think that the english language probably needs to you know, sit down and take a take a back seat for a while. There's so much content and amazing things that are available in other languages. And I think once you start learning more than just English, you realize that too. Being able to listen to songs and watch movies and and have all of that and experience it without subtitles and really get the feel for what's going on is incredible. And I think once you realize that you do realize how big of a voice English has and how much it's kind of making all content seem the same. Yeah. I think it's kind of drowning out a lot of those other creators and other content and and stuff that's available on the internet, definitely. But in terms of technology destroying or ruining languages, languages are meant to change and grow and, and that comes from influences of, you know, wars or people moving from different places or heaps of different outside influences. I don't think that technology is necessarily responsible for that. I just think that it makes that process faster. Well, we all sort of just go into one mega English. I would hope not. I really (laughs) do. I I hope not. I think it's, there's something nice to to say that thoughts can be expressed in, in different ways by different people and, you can share in that too. I would really hope that English did not take over everything. That would be like my worst nightmare. Because I think that is slowly like if, if so if I look at my, um, like some people I know, their grandmas, they don't speak English. Whereas any kid in Holland speaks English because they're all playing Fortnite online. And they're looking at Fortnite streamers. That's all English. And it's probably the same everywhere in the world, most places, most Western places in the world. So, and then um, it's easy to travel around. It's easy to get remote jobs. And then everyone speaks English. So I think it is slowly going that way, but I do hear what you're saying with with um, some things are better expressed, um, not in English. Yeah, I I have had this conversation quite a few times with my partner because he started getting almost 
kind of angry that the Dutch language wasn't being appreciated or wasn't being not preserved. He's not like some sort of language purist, but he was really disappointed to come back to the Netherlands after, you know, four or five years of being away and realize how much of, you know, billboards and signs and and things are actually now in English. And he was like, I never would have had that when I was a kid walking around. And you kind of feel like because your language is so tied up with your culture and, and your identity and your identity and who you see, how you express yourself as a person and to watch that kind of being overtaken by someone else's language is disappointing. Like I totally understood his kind of fear of that. So I think that was probably another reason why he was really advocating for me to learn the language as well as sort of a way to, to help preserve it. And especially now that we have a child together that we would want her to be able to speak both languages. So yeah. it would have been extremely awkward if I didn't know how to speak Dutch <laughs> and they're just having all these secret conversations with each other. So, yeah. but yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I just, I think that people should have more pride in the language that they speak and uphold it a little more. And I don't know if that's just Dutch specific, but there is a lot of that kind of letting go or like Dutch is cooler. I see that a lot in my like super young audience, like people who are in that like really young age bracket, 13, 17 will leave comments like, yeah, but Dutch, Dutch is ugly or Dutch is an ugly language or things are just better said in English. And it makes me really disappointed because it's so not how I feel about the Dutch language. Like I would never make a YouTube channel about a language that I thought was ugly and horrible and and not expressive. Like I just would never even learn it. These are the top five ugliest words in Dutch. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it seems really worrying to see a younger generation of people not finding themselves in that language yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. i guess but yeah i think that's just the age group maybe i think they have that with everything like my language is ugly my face is ugly my clothes are ugly my parents don't understand (laughs) i hate the world yeah and i'm gonna go on youtube and i'm gonna voice my opinion (laughs) (laughs) brooding teenagers yeah So something I was curious about, um, about your YouTube channel. So we're going to bring it back to your YouTube channel. Um, do you do any acquisition? Because you have so many subscribers and so many views. Like, what does that look like? Is that just general YouTube algorithm? Or do you actively try to promote your channel? Or um, is it all secret? No, that's no, no secret. It's just organic it just happens I guess I think if you make content that YouTube can see people are interested in YouTube's more likely to promote it to other people that might be interested in it and that's kind of how the algorithm works once you've made one good video you're more likely to get more yeah that's it YouTube is YouTube's number one aim is to keep people on the platform as long as possible so if you've produced a video that people want to click on. So you've got a good, neat, clear thumbnail and people think, okay, that's what I want to click on. Plus the title they watched for three or four minutes. YouTube is going to say, or maybe they liked it. Maybe they left a comment. 
YouTube takes all of that information yeah. into consideration and then they make a, a sort of a rating for the video behind their scenes. I obviously don't get access to, to the amount of data they have, but, and they yeah, they are responsible for putting it in as many, in front of as many eyes as they think will be interested in it. As so, so, how, so like if, if you want to get successful on YouTube, how important is your thumbnail and your, the name of your video, like in generating um, your success? Like it seems like it's it's overly weighted towards clickbaity titles, which you see a lot of in YouTube. But it, that makes sense if you're explaining that algorithm in that way. You do. I think the thumbnail and the title are your first impression, and if no one is clicking on that, YouTube kind of smothers the video. There's so much yeah. new content yeah. going up on YouTube that your content is smothered anyway, whether it's good or bad. Yeah, and. If it's bad, it's basically non-existent because YouTube is just not going to promote it. If no yeah. one's clicking on it, that's sort of like the first hurdle that you need to get over as a creator is making sure that the thumbnail looks interesting enough or catches the eye or stands out amongst, you know, that grid of yeah. nine, 12 other videos that are being shown to the, to the viewer at the same time. So, yeah, I think that does create a lot of clickbaity sort of content and false advertising yeah. and, you know, people clicking on videos and then thinking this is not what I clicked on. And, yeah, but then that second hurdle is making sure that people stay and watch. So that's yeah. where you've really got to live up to that title or live up to your thumbnail and make sure that people actually stay and watch the content because people can be clicking on your video, but if they're not hanging around, YouTube also takes that into consideration and they'll say, okay, well, this is not interesting content and they will not show it to people. Yeah. No, I'm just, I'm just wondering how, uh, how easy it is to play that numbers game to just create clickable thumbnails and then sort of drag your explanation. Like the, you see that with some explanation movies or like a, a review of, of an iPhone or whatever. And then the first 10 minutes will be them talking about whatever their day. And then at the end it will be, oh, and this is the iPhone. And it's like, ah, oh, waiting all this a long time. It's like, no, yeah. just, and it really annoys me. Uh, but on the other hand, if it's them trying to play the algorithms, then I sort of understand where that's coming from. Yeah, I don't think I realized how much there was to, to YouTube and the content that I used to watch before I was even on there with my yeah. own channel. Uh, you just go on there and you look up what you need to know. And if someone's rambling on about something, I'd be like, okay, well, this is not what I clicked on yeah. or this is click not what I'm here and for and click away. and Downvote them. Yeah, and then that all adds up and that I totally it directly affects their channel and their content and, and how visible they are on YouTube, which yeah. yeah, that that blew my mind. But yeah, it is it is kind of a bit of a numbers game once you see that that back end of it can turn it can change you. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've I've watched a lot of other people who have been on YouTube far longer than I have talk about how the numbers really kind of negatively affect the content that they make yeah. and can feel that it really stifles their creativity. And I think not having YouTube as like a full-time job, which I'm obviously in the position of, yeah. of having it, it's just a side project, it's just a passion project. Do whatever you want, pretty much. I can do whatever I want. It's not, you know, putting as soon as groceries starts, on my table. Yeah not like supporting my child going to school or anything like no. that and i think that's where maybe that negative impact can yeah. come from who literally make their living from youtube yeah well i think you see well i mean the podcast called finding inspiration so a lot of the time we talk about like 
inspiration and and how you go from creating something out of love to creating something to put bread on the table and you see like with a lot of people like their first movie their first album that was created from this this initial drive just to create something beautiful and then they got a record label or they got some other label and then it's like now you need to to make content for money and then it's like okay well then i'm gonna smooth it out i'm gonna make it so that people can can consume it easily but it loses yeah. that bit of soul and and i wonder how i mean if you say you see that the same in, in youtube videos that would make sense and it's it's counterproductive because the whole reason why you, you sign one of these people is because they created something beautiful and then giving them a, a monetary value and if that stifles their their creativity or the beauty of their art it sort of defeats the purpose it does hugely and i think that a lot of people some people are blessed and have the ability to turn their passion into a job and into an income and live doing exactly what they love to do making music or researching certain topics or whatever it is that makes you passionate and really makes you feel like you've got purpose and that you're alive and you're doing what you love. And yeah, like you were saying, I think once you give that monetary value to that passion, how much is it worth? And then when it becomes food on the table, how much of your own creativity do you have to stifle to make sure that it's palatable to more people? Yeah. And how do you make it? Yeah. It's, it's a super intricate balance I think especially when you want to start monetizing your passion I my father's passionate about cooking he always has been and he's a fantastic cook and went to chef school and and worked in you know amazing casinos and amazing restaurants and then and then totally he just left he was like mm -hmm. no I it's it's my passion and I want it to stay in that place yeah. and when it becomes your job and you're listening to what other people like and getting complaints from people in the on the floor saying this isn't cooked the way I like it and yeah. and stuff like that he was like I just don't care because it's my yeah. passion and I, I yeah. cooked it and I want to make it exactly how I want to make it and that's it he throws amazing dinner parties and and barbecues and all of that stuff and you know his friends and family get to enjoy that passion so yeah yeah when when do you decide when a passion should be monetized and should everyone be making that that step into turning your passion into it's one thing to find a passion that's you know you can stumble across that sort of stuff and and it can catch you by surprise i never thought i'd be passionate about making videos 12 months ago because i'd never even picked up a camera well but, isn't it also i mean um, just just from your story no one is forcing you to create this content. So all the content goes through a sort of quality control of you being passionate about it. I mean, that's your initial spark for most of your content. But as soon as someone says you need to make three videos a month, then it's bypassing that, that filtering. And then it's already lost the thing that sparks it. Like this, the spark is coming from a different place. Yeah, I think so too. I think sometimes how I try and work it is when I have moments where I'm really feeling 
creative or I have a bunch of ideas floating around my head or a bunch of questions about Dutch culture or maybe a question that sparked something with that I have with my partner or friends and family that we have in the Netherlands and I might just have like a big brainstorm and I kind of just dump all of this stuff out onto a Google Doc and I just, you know, throw everything out there or maybe I see something in a film or a video and I think, oh, that'd be a really cool intro. Like maybe I could incorporate Mm -hmm. that into, into a video or an editing style or something like that and I have a big brain dump. So when I do feel like I've got moments where I'm not feeling so creative, I've got those old kind of creative juices on a page somewhere that I can kind of call upon. It has sort of changed in the last few months. Like, yes, it started as a purely passion project. And just recently I got a sponsorship through Skillshare and that did change things a lot. I remember the first sponsored video that I brought out, I was so nervous. And when I was re-editing the video, I could see that I was nervous. I don't think anyone else would notice that, but I could hear the difference in my voice. Like Uh, I was not as relaxed and I wasn't, myself in that video and I probably noticed it because I knew that I was nervous when I was filming it so self-conscious about it yeah definitely but it's you know we yeah it has changed things monetizing it but when you've got those windows of like pure creativity or something really like sparks you I kind of make the most of those moments now too because I really take them up and I think oh that'd be a really cool idea and I make sure to jot it down all the time and so I've got it there to go back to. Yeah. No, that's cool. I think I think that's definitely interesting, like how uh, yeah, how how money affects your creativity, especially when you're paid to be creative. It's like, what do you do? It's uh interesting dilemma. Yeah, I think I think people think that like creativity comes on a tap and it just is not the way it works. It's like people writing a book, you know, they write their first book, they slave away on it, you know, yeah. after work and you know, whenever they can squeeze it in and then all of a sudden it's a success and they need to write a sequel and it's never as good or oh. Well, I think there's there's a really interesting uh, quote, I'm not sure who it's from, but he says um like any job there's a certain amount of creativity in it. Like if you're a developer, if you're a designer, if you're whatever, a chef, musician, a painter, you need these creative problems to solve. And then, so this guy, he goes and he asks all these people, like, when, when do you feel creative? He says, well, maybe when I'm out for a run, maybe when I'm having a shower, maybe when I'm uh, playing with my dogs or with my kids, that's when I get that, that, that stroke of creativity. And he says, I've, I've interviewed a million people, a thousand people, and no one has ever said, I feel creative in the office. And it's like, that's the point. That's when people pay you to be creative and solve these solutions. And it's this weird thing where as soon as you put pressure on creativity, it, it disappears. It's like one of those, I don't know, things you yeah. can't force. It's, Isn't that I think interesting? That's weird. I, as you were saying that story, I was kind of thinking to myself, well, where do I feel creative? Yeah. Like, when do I get struck with those moments of like, yes, that could yeah. work? Or, yeah, it's, it's when you're lying in bed it's, just before you fall asleep, or like this. Yeah. And no one ever says, when I'm at my desk in a meeting that I've just been having for the last three hours, do I think, oh. Or like sitting there looking at a blank page, being like, come on, think of something. Oh. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. It's, um, yeah, creativity certainly isn't an endless stream. Well, isn't it true. one of those things? It's like, it's like happiness. If you force it, it's 
probably shit or something. There's, there's one of these things where you can't, some things you can't force. And I think creativity is one of them. When you really try to force creativity, you're not forcing creativity. You're just sort of falling back on certain patterns you already know work well. Yeah. Yeah. I think 100%. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think you can feel the difference too. Like now that I have been kind of found myself in a position where I'm making money from my creativity, you have those moments of being like, does this work? Am I just doing this because I know that it could work? Am I doing this? Cause I think it's a really cool idea and I've pulled it from somewhere that mm-hmm. level of like, pure inspiration or like like you said falling back to those patterns where you're like oh well you know this will this will work this will get me over yeah Yeah. (laughs) i think creativity comes with a certain amount of risk like real creativity because yeah the first time you had it like i don't know if this is gonna work but i'm gonna try it and then the second time if it's if it's the same pattern then you already know it's gonna work it's not a risk yeah 100 percent. i've definitely had videos that i've gone to post and been like I'm nervous like I do not know how this is going to be taken like the content the you know and I'm not like super crazy on my editing style I do just mostly talking head videos so there's not a huge amount of stuff that I can squeeze into I get a little bit of freedom with my intro and title pages and I try to throw my creativity into into thumbnails because I think it's fun but yeah, there are some videos where I'm like, ooh, this, you know, like butterflies and <laughs> you, you watch it go live and you see if people are watching it or clicking on it. And yeah. and there's yeah. some stuff that's out of your control, I guess. Like you might put something live and then the next day something else, major event might happen and your video is going to be snowed over and you're like, was it a bad video or was it just bad timing? Yeah, that's the thing. I've had to ask myself that too a few times. I've thought, was that not what I wanted to do? What did I have made that if I was feeling more creative would I have made that have I just made that video just to put something out there like you question your own motives and why you've put that content on the internet is that what I wanted to make is that what my audience wanted to see or or was it just bad timing yeah yeah you never know you'll never know either so it's just one of those things pick yourself up and, and try something new yeah I think that's the biggest thing too if you do produce something that kind of flops is keep going because something will stick and something will feel right too. Like you'll produce something and you'll be like, this feels really good and this feels like it gelled really well. And Do you think stuff that, that is done and fueled with creativity um, is easier to create? Like you just do it and it's just like, okay, one, two, three, knock it out of the park and things that don't do well, it's already a struggle to like, uh, it doesn't gel right, doesn't feel right but I'm going to get it out anyway, or is that not really the case with the videos? Um, I've had probably a mix of both. I've definitely had videos that have flowed out of me. I don't have to keep doing takes. I just sit in front of the camera and I make less mistakes and I can just sit there and I've already got, you know, the overlays or the B-roll or the title pages like in my head before I film because okay, I'm yeah. so excited to, to sit down and do it. So I feel like the video feels like it's created as a whole piece whereas other times I've had videos and I've thought okay well I can't film tomorrow and I can't film the day after so I have to film today but I don't really feel like filming Uh, and then you kind of sit in front of the camera you make lots of mistakes and you have to go back through and cut them all out and and you don't really have a whole cohesive idea of how you want that video to look before you've put it together 
I have had videos that have come together last minute and thought, oh, that was actually a really cool video. And I loved how the titles kind of came back into it or, you know, whatever it ended up being, even though I felt kind of crappy filming that day, like I surprised yeah. myself and kind of, you know, whip it back up into shape when I'm feeling it a bit more. Yeah. But yeah, it's, um, it's interesting that, yeah, I think I've had a mix of, of creativity really being the fuel for, for content or, well, I guess that's really creativity coming in to save the day when I've had a shitty day, you know, filming. So, (laughs) Okay. Um, It's it's getting a bit uh, long this interview, but um, some things that we always end with, with this interview is, is someone that you find inspirational. Where do you get, is there a person out there that you're like, that person inspires me? Yeah. So I have been, watching Damon Dominique on YouTube for a really, really long time. And I probably started watching him when he was teaching French, you know, hacks and little videos and, you know, how to sound more French and how to, you know, sound like more like a local and how to use the language as someone who uses it, which I found is so such an interesting concept back then. And I didn't yeah. speak any other languages and I was, you know, that was just the beginning of my on and off relationship with French. But so I kind of came across him and I've just been following his journey over the last few years. And he's an American expat who lives in Paris and his content really stands out to me on the YouTube platform. It doesn't follow that normal narrative of, well, it doesn't appear to me that it follows that normal narrative of creating cookie cutter content to get clicks and likes and subscribers and, you know, ad watchbacks and sponsorships. It just does not come across that way. And his creative style is is slathered all over his content. I love how unique it is and how he manages to squeeze himself into all of these different ways, whether it's a different font or a color palette or how he's color graded the footage that he's used. I just really find the cohesiveness of it and how expressive it is super, super inspiring. And I, I love, love, love watching his videos and figuring out ways how I could showcase that expat lifestyle and that love for the language and love for the culture that I have, even though, you know, we don't, I'm also not American and I also don't live in Paris, but we do have that similar kind of story of being, you know, foreigners in a culture that we love. Yeah. And how do I express that? And how do I show that to my viewers? And yeah, he's sort of on that same mission. His name was Damien. Damon Dominique. Damon Dominique. Oh, check him out. Sounds uh, sounds fun. Yeah, he is fun. <laughs> <laughs> and what I will, something else I always ask is uh, two people for me to get in touch with. So two other people that you find uh, creative or have interesting stories or are just passionate about whatever they do. Yeah, so when I was thinking about this question, I thought of my friend Celia Gurkovich, who was the one that really encouraged me to even start a YouTube channel. And I was sort of sitting here playing with ideas. I was thinking maybe I start a blog, you know, about language learning and and doing doing it that way. And she was like, just start a YouTube channel, just do it. And she was really trying to like push me into it. And and she is such an ideas person. She is my person that I go to and we have these big brainstorm sessions and she'll fling ideas that are left side and she'll be like, yep, yeah, this is, you know, she's 
started her own businesses. She's got three different businesses that she started up. She went and developed an app and she, you know, 360'd her business during COVID to make sure that it was still profitable. She is like amazing and yeah, she's a massive inspiration to me and and sort of my voice when I feel like, oh, am I wasting time doing a YouTube channel? Like, is this actually turning into something? Is this something that's that's, that's worth it? And she's that person to be like, yes, yeah. yes, it is. So keep going. So yeah, she would have to be my number one person that I would recommend. And my other person would be another friend of mine who works in the wine industry and she... I lived with her when we were in Western Australia when she was studying and she, if anyone has a passion for wine, that's still healthy, mind you, having a healthy passion for for alcohol, it would be her. She loves the industry. She loves how grapes are grown and how they, you know, go from something and the history of wine. And, you know, her father's also in the wine industry. He's in import export. And so she's grown up with it in her home and, and just the role that, wine has played in her family and 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 memories and and now she's working in the industry and she's an ambassador and she's living in Napa Valley over in California and okay. has really made it her life mission to kind of jump so deep into the industry and learn as much as she can about it and she's incredibly incredibly successful in in doing that she's she's really good writing papers on it all the time and okay yeah, being published and stuff. So she's probably my other person who I find really has like found her passion and yeah. made it her life. I think, like we were saying before, it's one thing to find a find a passion, but how do you turn that into your bread and butter? And yeah, something you can do forty hours, fifty hours a week. Yep, that's it. That's yeah. that's it. And what was her name? Uh, Molly Shepherd. Molly Shepherd. Shepherd. Cool. And then for the very last uh, part of the podcast, we always ask, what else have you been getting up to? And what are some recommendations you can recommend people to do beside binge or your YouTube content? Um, I have been reading a lot of books lately and I kind of went on a bit of a, um, I haven't really been reading that many books. I've been kind of watching content. I think that kind of comes with being, in that kind of field, you watch what other people are doing and getting inspiration and getting ideas all the time. And it's nice to kind of like take a back, a back seat from the screen and, and actually, you know, sit down, read a book. Don't look at your phone. Don't look at a TV. Don't look at your laptop. Don't look at emails. Just, just read a book. And I was, I find it hard to finish books too if I don't like them I put them down straight away but this was the first one that I'd finished in a really long time and it was actually Breath by James Nestor and he had gone from you know having all of these asthma issues and just a, a very kind of probably standard lifestyle and trained himself to hold his breath for 13 minutes and goes right into the science of, of oxygen and oh, really? and how it affects your body and how controlling the way that you breathe and the, and the manner in which you do that and how much control we pro- probably can have, how many health benefits you get from that. Yeah. And at first I was a bit skeptical because my father actually recommended it to me and I said, that's, that's no way. <laughs> you know, breathing's just breathing. You just do it. And... <laughs> 
I read this book and I was very quickly corrected. It's it was really awesome and super surprising to. So how long can uh, you hold your breath uh, for? Not thirteen minutes. Let okay, me. Tell no. You. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't tested how long I can hold my breath, but the book definitely goes into to far more of the the science and benefits of being kind of retraining yourself how to breathe properly and how yeah. much of a direct impact that can have on your day-to-day health. So, yeah, that would be my recommendation. Cool. Read a book and read, read book. that one. I think it's interesting <laughs> that like everyone I speak to is like, okay, so I'm sitting at screen the whole day, so I'm going to recommend go for a bike ride or do this or like all these non-screen yeah. related to things. I think that's that's quite interesting. So this is also where I recommend what I've been getting up to. and. Um, but the Holland's in another lockdown. So um, we've been throwing away a lot of stuff, a lot of clothes, a lot of stuff you like keeping like, this is still pretty good. Am I going to wear it? No, probably not. Or this is still good, but I have a lot of memories. I don't want to throw it away. And then you're like, mm. I've been looking at this, at this, this, this jacket for two years. I'm, I'm seriously, I'm not going to wear it. So we just got a whole bunch of clothes. I think we got like three big rubbish bags of just old clothes got rid of them have a little bit more space in the house and just slowly tidying up the house and so that'd be my gift would be um throw things away isn't it the best feeling ever i get like somewhat addicted to it i love like just you know throw it away get rid of it my my mom's just moving just moved house and she was holding on to all of these like crazy things. Like I found these keychains from like my old primary school or something in this drawer. And I was like, why are you still here? Like yeah. keychains from, you know, my old sports team yeah. when I played netball when I was like 10 years old. I was like, these should not be here. So, you know. But isn't that like stuff. the sunken cost fallacy where like I've kept it through three uh, house moves. So the fourth house move, I'm also going to keep it because I've already kept it for so long. It's like... <laughs> well- <laughs> There might be some some sort of element of that, definitely. Yeah, because because I know I've got a box upstairs with things that are too valuable to throw away, but they're just upstairs in the attic, and I'm never going to look at them. And it's like, eh, I don't know. It's it's a weird thing that you do. And I'm a massive advocate for like yeah. getting rid of it, though. So I'm the wrong person to talk to. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. When I, I used to live in a really tiny house, so I didn't have that much stuff. And now I live yeah. in a slightly bigger house, and then people are like, oh. We're going to throw away this table. It's like, no, don't throw it away. Give it to me. All the stuff in my house. Like, oh, what do I do with all the stuff? So, yeah. If anyone wants a table, can uh, send me a message. Got got a really nice table to give away. Um, So, yeah. And how how can people find your work? Well, I'm mostly just on YouTube. That's where I'm at. So, how do they find you? Just Casey Gilmore. Casey Kilmore. I was pretty creative with the with the whole naming of the YouTube channel yeah. situation. I was just, you know, go for the original. That, and think, that's it. I think it's difficult because your name, Casey, you write C-A-S-E-Y and then Kilmore is K-I-L-M-O-R-E. Yes. So yeah, it's that's two it. names A you can spell in different ways. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. A lot of people think it's like a double like the initials are a double K, so Casey yeah. also with a K, but no, it's Casey with a C and Kilmore with one L. Yeah. I feel like, you know, when you spell your own name and you kind of have these habits of being like, you know, Casey with a C and Kilmore with yeah, one L. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like one of those 
rehearsed things when you're filling out forms or people asking for your name for an appointment or something. That's it's a, it's a, it follows the, the, the Marvel rule of naming where you have the same uh, letter sound for the, your first name and your last name. Like Is there Bruce, a rule with that? Bruce Banner. And oh, yeah. There's like all these, these people with the first name. I'm a secret name. superhero. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the, the power to understand Dutch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. So now I'm going to round off the, the, the way I always round off this podcast is um, asking for everyone's money to sponsor us on the Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Jason's podcast. And if you have any feedback, or would like to recommend a guest, have any questions, uh, please send them to findinginspirationpodcast at gmail.com. And with that, I'd like to thank Casey for taking the time to share a story. And we'll see you guys all next week. <laughs>